If I were uh, to ask you which of the Bible's commands were the most difficult for you to obey, I'm sure that the response would be greatly varied. Some of us might choose Exodus 20:16, where it says, you shall not bear false witness. This one can be hard because many times we can twist the truth when we find ourselves in a tight spot. Sometimes we spin the facts as needed to make our story or our situation better. Others would say Exodus 20, 17 were hard, or is a hard command to follow because it says, you shall not covet. There's no doubt about it that we live in a consumer-driven society and every imaginable form of luxury is being advertised and thrown in our face on a daily basis. It's hard not to want some of those things that we can never really afford. And so we find ourselves yearning for that BMW or that exotic vacation or that remodeled kitchen that our neighbor down the street just got done. Some people might confess that Paul's commandment in Philippians 2.14 is the most difficult one because it says, do all things without complaining. I mean, let's face it. We, can't, we complain a lot about our circumstances, about other people, and we're very vocal at complaining about things that are totally out of our control. In fact, there are some Christians who think complaining is their spiritual gift. <laughs> and I can assure you it's not. it's not. That's not on the list anywhere, but you're good at it. So while I know from experience that each of these examples of commands in God's word can be difficult for us to follow, I would have to say that the vast majority of the people struggle with the words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 14, verse one. In fact, you can go ahead and start turning to John 14 if you want. It's where Jesus says these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now you may say, well, that's really not a command, Pastor David. Well, though it, it, it may not sound like a command, in the original Greek, the sentence carries with it the firmness and the resolve and the conviction of a command. But as we will read in a moment in the context in which Jesus spoke it, he delivered those words quite tenderly. I think it's interesting to note that the literal translation would be this, let not your heart shudder, let not your heart tremble. Well, this is indeed a command that is hard for you and I to obey because these days we have so much to shudder and to tremble about. Think about it. Since the stay-at-home order and the shutdown of our economy, things have never ever gotten back to where they were before. And if you have gone back to work, there's a good chance you're working harder than you've ever worked in your entire life because a lot of people have chosen not to go back to work. So you're doing the work of two people, in some cases three. Inflation is running rampant. Prices are going up across the board. Lisa shared with me the other day that there was going to be an 8% across the board increase in our groceries. Housing prices are so high that it's putting people right out of the market. Young people can't even afford to buy a house any longer because the payment is, is so high and the down payment is much bigger than they've got. Our national debt, in case you haven't noticed, is already unsustainable 
But now our president wants to pass an infrastructure bill with all kinds of nonsense added to it. And if it passes, it will add trillions more to uh, of borrowed money, I might add. And that means our money, <laughs> our money to an already unsustainable debt load. When's it all going to stop? Where, where's it all going to end? We're also in a drought. You wouldn't know it the last couple days. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Keep it coming, Lord. Keep it coming. That's been my prayer. But everybody's afraid that their well's going to run dry, and that's a very real fear. Terrorism is still a threat, not just abroad, but here in our own nation. We also worry about military conflict as both Russia and especially China are making threats. And both are actively involved in areas of the world where our national interests are at stake. We worry about how our government is encroaching on our personal freedoms. We worry that many people in our government seem bent on bringing socialism into our free market society. This is just a short list of things that we worry about. And if these concerns aren't enough, then we deal with all of those, our, our minds real, and we worry about all the, the what ifs of life. Well, what if I get cancer? What if my teenage son or daughter gets hooked up with the wrong crowd? What if I lose my job? What if I don't get my sermon done by Sunday morning? <laughs> this command for us not to be troubled is indeed a difficult one for us to obey, isn't it? I would go so far as to say that one of the reasons that this command is so challenging to us is the fact that we live in what some refer to as the cardiac age. Because many things compete to cause our hearts to be troubled. We endure a, a wide variety of worries that, that have the ability to, to steal our sleep and to keep our minds churning, negatively I might add, throughout the course of a day. They are all concerns that induce stress and literally squash any joy we have in us. It's easy for us to understand Job chapter five, verse seven, where he says, yet man is born unto trouble because our lives are indeed full of troubling things. Now, before I read the text where Jesus issues this difficult command, I wanna provide you with some context. The disciples have just shared Passover, the Last Supper with Jesus, and you should remember from our study, at this particular meal, Jesus dropped a number of verbal bombshells on his inner circle. He told them he was going to be betrayed by one of them. He said that Simon Peter, who was well-perceived as the leader of the disciples, would deny him. And then Jesus gave them the worst news of all. He said that he was going to leave them. This was a lot for these guys to take in. So understand that they, they were confused. And the one that they were the most upset about was the fact that Jesus was gonna leave them. They were confused and so in their heart of hearts there was shuddering going on. There was uh, trembling going on. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn to John chapter 14. We're gonna read verses one through 12. You can follow along as we read. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. John. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, I'll be reading from the New International Version. 
Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Gotta love Thomas. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples for just a moment. And I want you to try to fully understand why their hearts were trembling and shuddering at this point. You see, for three years, they had been, Jesus had been their closest associate, their constant companion. He was their master. He was their teacher. These men, they loved Jesus for 36 blessed months. These men had experienced what no human being had experienced since the Garden of Eden, intimate day-by-day fellowship with our Lord. And this helps to explain why they had literally left everything behind in order to follow Jesus, their occupations, their families, their friends, their hopes and their dreams. They had given up everything in order to follow Jesus, and their future now rested in Jesus. So anyone who had experienced what these first disciples had experienced, I believe would naturally be troubled with all this news that Jesus had just shared with them. I mean, how were they going to deal with the betrayal of a fellow disciple? How would they respond to Peter's denial of Jesus? How would they endure the departure of their friend and of their master? How could they even think about Jesus' words and not be troubled and not be distressed? Well, in this text, Jesus tells his first followers how to heal their troubling hearts. And we would serve ourselves well if we would pay attention to this because what he said that night is the prescription to our heart troubles as well. Jesus' words help us his current disciples, to know what we need to do in order to calm our own worries. 
and to calm our own fears and to calm our own anxieties. So pay attention, here it is, here is the cure. When it looks like your world is crumbling in on you, Jesus says these simple words in John 14 verse one, you believe in God, believe also in me. And ladies and gentlemen, implicit in believing is to place our trust in God. In fact, the Living Bible Translation uh, doesn't say believe in God, it says trust in God. To be more accurate, the way it's written implies that to have an untroubled heart is that you keep on trusting God and that you keep on trusting Jesus. So what exactly does trust entail? Well, unfortunately, trust is one of those overused words that I don't think all of us fully understand well enough. To get an accurate grasp of its meaning, we need to compare the word trust with the word faith. True, they are similar words, almost synonymous in our vocabulary, vocabulary but they are actually miles apart. You see, faith is what moves mountains. Faith is what calms a storm. But trust, well, that's actually greater than faith. Trust is what allowed Jesus to sleep soundly in that boat while the storm raged all around them. Let me put it this way. Faith is knowing that God can change things while trust is knowing that God will change things. Trust is the conviction that God will indeed work all things out for your good. So to put it simply, trust is, is what enables you to hang on until the miracle comes, until God calms your storm. So then the question becomes, how can we trust Jesus? Or to put it more clearly, why should we trust in him as we endure our heart-shuddering storms in this life? We'll look at it another way. What credentials does Jesus have that merits this kind of caliber of, of trust that strengthens and calms our troubled hearts. Author and pastor Bob Russell suggests a number of excellent ones I'd like to share with you this morning. First, he reminds us that Jesus is trustworthy because of his supernatural identity. As Jesus said in verse nine, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus, he is no ordinary man. He is God temporarily making a physical appearance here on this earth. Jesus was literally God with us. And God is always faithful. And God can always be trusted. So as God, Jesus can be as well. A second reason Jesus is trustworthy is because of his impeccable integrity. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, but he did not yield to sin, not even once. As a little boy, Jesus never sassed his mother. He never lied to Joseph about why he came in late at night. He never cheated on a test that he took at the school, at the synagogue. As an adult, he kept the law of God perfectly. His record was spotless. He never sinned in thought or in word or in deed. In fact, he even asked one of his enemies, he said, which of you accuses me of sin? And guess what? Not one of them could offer a testimony to that effect. Now, if we went to our family 
and we went to our friends and said, which one of you can accuse me of sin? Well, <laughs> we all know there'd be a long line. But not Jesus. Even in the hostile courtroom of Pilate's house, that Roman judge said this about Jesus. He said, I find no fault in him. So with his perfect integrity, you can trust Jesus to do what he says he will do every single time. And then thirdly, Jesus merits our trust because of his keen intellect. Even when he was a child, the Jewish scholars were amazed at, at his wisdom and knowledge. No one could match his intellectual brilliance. And the amazing thing is, with his brilliance, he still delivered things in such a way that common people were able to understand him, even though he was the smartest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And 2,000 years later, his words still stimulate our thinking and alters our behavior. I mean, as omniscient God in the flesh, Jesus knows literally everything. So he is infinitely, uh, he is infinitely qualified to say to you and I, trust me, do not let your hearts be troubled. I know things about the, the troubles you're going through that you don't know, so don't worry. Fourth, Jesus also merits our trust because of his miraculous power. Remember in verse 11, he said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He's talking about the miracles. Friends, only Jesus could make the diseased well, make the deaf to hear again, make the demons flee, and bring the dead back to life. Only Jesus could do that. In fact, one of the religious leaders of his day admitted that Jesus had to be from God. He said, because nobody could do the miracles he did unless he was from God. In short, Jesus has the power to handle anything that troubles us. Here's a fifth credential. Jesus is worthy of our trust because of his sacrificial death. Like with the other gospel writers, John tells us of a day that the religious leaders put Jesus to death on a Roman cross. And the one thing that we must never forget is that Jesus permitted this to happen. That's why he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it on my own accord. He said, I lay down my life for a, rans for the ran a ransom for many. So understand, Jesus didn't die the sad victim of injustice. He died as a deliberate substitute for our sin. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's say you were six months behind on your mortgage payment and the banker called you for an appointment and you sit there with fear and trembling knowing that you're about to be evicted, you're about to be homeless, and you seem helpless to be able to do anything about the process. Your bank account is empty, but suddenly the banker says to you, he says, hey, I've really got good news for you. You have a wealthy relative, and he not only paid up your back six payments that you're behind, but he paid off the entire mortgage. Here's the deed to your property. Now it belongs to you. <laughs> Man, oh man, you'd walk out of there so grateful. You'd walk out of there so elated at this gift. Well, listen, friends, we all have a huge debt of sin that we cannot possibly pay. In a very real sense, you and I were subject to being evicted 
from God's house, if you want to look at it that way. But Jesus came, and he paid off the entire debt for us. Yeah. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus merits our complete trust because he sacrificed his life for you and for me. And wouldn't you agree, anyone who would be willing to die for you could surely be trusted. And then number six, Jesus is worthy of our trust because of his predicted resurrection. Think of it. Jesus predicted the impossible. He said to his followers, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to raise from the grave. At that time, no one believed him. But Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. Listen, if a man can predict the future and he can predict his own resurrection and then do it, if he has the power to come back from the dead, he certainly is capable of handling any of your or my problems, right? You can't get more trustworthy than that. By the way, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is why, why he can say in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, Jesus died, and three days later, he walked out of that empty tomb saying to you and I, I am the way to eternal life. You follow me, and you can make it through. No other religious figure can make that claim. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not even Moses, who the Jews looked up to so earnestly because none of them did what Christ Jesus did. None of them came back from the grave. So only Jesus can say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Follow me, and I'll get you to heaven. Number seven, the last one of these points, Jesus is worthy of our trust because of his present position. Oh, don't worry, I got a bunch of more points. That was just the first set of points I'm giving you. Jesus is worthy of our trust because of his present position. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Bible teaches that Jesus ascended to heaven and now he's with the Father praying for us, interceding for us, encountering the accuser's actions against us, Satan. Wouldn't you trust somebody who had such a big time influence with the judge of the universe pleading your case? Well, I would, and I do. I trust Jesus completely. So the one who has all these credentials, he says to you and I, don't let your heart be troubled. You trust in God, trust in me also. I think we can trust him, don't you? Of course we can. You know, when we are going through the worrisome troubles, troubling times of life, we have to remember the words of this famous saying, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I can't handle together. The problem is we want to handle it on our own. And if your mindset is, I'm going through this with the Lord, there's nothing that you can't handle. So we can trust Jesus to help us deal with our worries. Our hearts can indeed stop shuddering and begin to rest in his personhood. So with all that in mind, let's go back and look at what our perfectly trustworthy Lord says in this text 
that calms our troubled hearts? What exactly does he ask us to trust him to do? Jesus asked us to trust his promise that he is preparing an eternal home for us. And someday he's gonna come and he's gonna take us there. Now I don't know about you, but to me, home is where I am the least worried. It doesn't matter how difficult my day has been. It doesn't matter what kind of personal things I'm dealing with, no matter what challenges I have to face. Whenever I pull into my driveway, my heart slows down and I begin to feel at ease. That's the way home is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place of safety. It's supposed to be a place of security. It's supposed to be a place of unconditional love. It's sort of a fortress where we can go and we can, we can find rest while the storms of life are going on around us. Well, Jesus says that he left this earth in order to prepare a special eternal home for you and I, those of us who have received salvation in Christ Jesus. And that promise does indeed calm our shuddering hearts. It does because all people, all people instinctively yearn for the safety and the security of an eternal home. C.S. Lewis called this the inconsolable longing. This is what he writes. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desire before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. And Lewis, as Lewis makes eminently clear here, all people have a longing for a heavenly home, whether they recognize it or not, because God placed it in us. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we all long for the safety. We all long for the security of an eternal home where there is no troubles, where there is no fear, where there is no sickness, where there is no separation, where there is no more death. Well, it's the reality of this eternal home that, that Jesus is now preparing for us that helps us not to worry about the troubles going on in this temporary world. And please let me stress, this world is not our home. It's the only reality that you know. So it seems like it's everything. We're just passing through, folks. We're just passing through. This is not our home. Back in 2016, a man named Anthony Berger died at the age of 44. His name might be familiar to you because he was well-known, probably known as the finest gospel pianist who ever lived. He had spent the last 10 years of his life playing with the Gaither Vocal Band. In fact, prior to his death, he accompanied the Gaithers on a Caribbean cruise of more than 1,500 people that were on that ship. What they would do is they vacationed during the day, and then in the evening after dinner, they would come to a gospel concert in the ship's theater. Well, on the fourth night out, 
Anthony Berger had just played a piano solo. And if you've ever seen this guy on film, and I have, he's, he's like a freak. I mean, I don't know how someone can play the piano the way that this man did. But, but he just, his, his, his skills would totally amaze you. In fact, you can go on YouTube. I'm sure you can find and watch him. It's just amazing. Well, about five minutes after doing his solo during that concert, he collapsed of a massive heart attack, and he died instantly there at his piano. And obviously everybody was distraught, including his family and, and the Gaither Band and everybody that was involved in that cruise. Well, author and speaker Becky Pipper was teaching. She was a guest teacher on that cruise, and she was asked to address the people the following morning at a Bible study. But Becky said that before she got up to speak, a woman came to her, and this woman said, Becky, I want to tell you what happened to me last night just before Anthony Berger died. And Becky confessed that often when she travels that people come up to her, they want to give their testimony. Most of them just want to be up on stage. They want some kind of a spotlight. But she said this woman was not one of those ego-driven people. She was very humble. She was very unassuming. And the woman said to her at the concert right after Anthony Berger played his solo, the spotlight went back to the other side of the stage. But for some reason, I kept my eyes on Anthony Berger. I felt like God, she said, was saying to me, I'm going to show you something from my realm that will be an encouragement to people. So I watched, and suddenly, she said, I saw an angel standing behind Anthony Berger. He appeared to be seven feet tall, dressed in white and gold, and he just stood there for about 30 seconds. He put his hand on Anthony's shoulder, and Anthony looked up and then slumped down and died when just minutes before he played the song, We Shall Behold Him. Now, you may question this woman's vision of an angel, and that's okay. Her testimony is not scripture, and whether you believe her or not is not a test of your faith. And I think we all know there are certainly false claims out there to be found. But I believe with all my heart that God sometimes gives us a glimpse of his glory in a way to feed and to fuel our hope. Now, those revelations seem to be very rare, and they're certainly not the foundation of our faith, but they do quicken our expectation. They quicken our anticipation. They increase our longing for this eternal home that the Lord has prepared for us. I don't know about you, but they remind me of Paul's words found in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what is it about this heavenly home that awaits us at the end of our life? What about it makes it so comforting to us? Well, there's a lot I could say, but I want to suggest three main things to you this morning. And the first one, and the most important one, is that Jesus will be there. When Christians die, we can know that Jesus will be waiting there to greet us when we get to that place that he has prepared for us, our heavenly home. In fact, this is what calmed Paul's shuddering heart. To be with Christ is something that Paul yearned for. In Philippians 1.23, he compared this world to the next when he said this, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Jesus is what will make heaven heaven. Story is told of a child whose mother became very ill. Close friends who lived nearby took the daughter to their home to stay with them until their mother got well. 
Well, instead of getting well, the, the mother grew more sick and she eventually died. The neighbors thought that they would not take the child back to her home until after the funeral was over, nor would they tell her that her mother died until it was all over. So after that time had passed, they simply brought the little girl back to her home, and immediately she went to find her mother. She, she went to the kitchen, and she went into her mother's bedroom. She went from one end of the house to the other, but she couldn't find her. And she stopped, and she finally asked, where's my mama? Well, they told her that her mother was gone. And the child's response was, let's just go back to our house. And she wanted to go back to the house of the neighbors who had been watching her for literal weeks. What that shows me is that home no longer had an attraction for her since her mother wasn't there any longer. And the fact that Jesus will be in heaven is what makes heaven so attractive to you and I. D.O. Moody wrote this, it's not the jasper walls and the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It's being with God. The blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote these timeless lyrics. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more, as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. You see, Fanny Crosby understood Paul's words in Philippians 3.20 when he wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, another thing that will make heaven wonderful is the fact that our loved ones will be there. So not only will Jesus be there, but our loved ones who have gone before us. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that... We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, I think that as Christians, we don't always view heaven in the right kind of a mindset, especially when we're younger. I mean, what we are taught about heaven, what we read about heaven within the scriptures, and we absorb what we get. I think even after we absorb what we've been given, we kind of miss the mark. We tend to think about the precious gems that adorn heaven, the pearly gates, the, the streets of gold, the shining city that would be populated by millions of angels. And while all those things are indeed mentioned in the scriptures, it doesn't really give you a complete understanding of what heaven is like. But as we grow older, and when many people who we know, friends and family, start to pass away, when we begin to lose our loved ones and our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, it has a way of changing our outlook. 
And no longer do we think so much about the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the unknown angels. We start to realize that we know as many people in heaven as we know here on earth. And our thoughts start to become more fixed upon that distant place and how it is going to be such a wonderful homecoming when we go there. A place where we will not just be united with our Lord and Savior who made every bit of it possible. We will be in his presence. We will experience his glory. We will experience this amazing place of perfect peace, but we will also be united once again with those who have gone before. Our grandparents, our parents, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, our friends and our relatives. And this makes us realize heaven is really home for us. At my age, and as a pastor who deals with death on a regular basis, I can totally relate with this. In fact, when I get to heaven, after I see my Jesus, and after I find my mom and my dad, and my sister, and my father-in-law, and many other family members and friends, I think it would be great to host what I'm going to call an unfuneral. And I will invite every Christian that I ever had a part in their funeral service. And instead of me sharing a sermon like I did when they were here in their casket or some were, were cremated, I want to hear from them. I want them to describe to me what heaven has been like, what this home that God prepared, prepared for them is like. Ask them to share reports of what God has had them doing since the time they left us. And instead of crying about the deceased, we will rejoice about the eternal life and the eternal heavenly home that God has provided. It will be a great unfuneral service, none like any have ever seen. And not to be morbid this morning, but if I end up presiding over any of your funerals, then remember this and consider yourself invited to my unfuneral. I went through my calendar. I couldn't believe all the people from High Point whose funerals I have presided over. And they'll all be invited. Bob Hayes, Roy Utt, Gary Connor. Rosie Dawson, Shirley Allen, Dwayne Evans, Jack Stewart, Sam Wright, Wayne and Patty Ralston, Adai Dexter, Cheryl Connor, Jess and Rima Casey, Eunice and John Morris, Florence Cross, Bill Stoppenbrink, David Briggs. There's more. Sorry if I didn't mention, that's 20 more reasons why heaven will be more precious to all of us. One final thing that will make the promise of heaven more, more comforting is the fact that when we get there, we will finally be all we were meant to be. Reminds me of the Marine slogans, be all you can be. 
What I mean is that heaven will be the finish line of our race towards Christ-likeness. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. On that great day, ladies and gentlemen, all of the sin, all of the ignorance, all of the anger, all of the jealousy, all of the hate, all of the selfishness, all of the personal pride, all that mars our personhood and damages our personal relationships will finally be obliterated and we will have a fresh view of even each other because we will see each other not as we have come to know them here on this earth, but we will begin to see them in the way that we were meant to see them. As God intended us to be, we will see them. Have you ever wondered what that will be like? Have you ever wondered? I have. And, and this is the best example I can come up with. If you've ever been sick with something and you were taken out of commission for even several days, but more like weeks or, or even months, Maybe you had a major surgery. You had some terrible flu, pneumonia. You may have recovered from COVID. The doctors gave you antibiotics and drugs to fight your infection, and your church family was praying for a physical healing for you. Do you remember what it felt like when you finally healed up and things got back to normal? Well, when it did, you felt like you were brand new, didn't you? You felt like you had been reborn. And how much you appreciate being whole again. Well, I think our glorification will be something like that. That's probably a flawed example, but it's one that I think every single one of us who can relate to, because we've all been sick at one time or another. Because when we get to heaven, all of the damage of sin will be perfectly healed. We will be as we have always wanted to be, as we have always yearned to be on that day we will finally and fully and completely be whole and well. And I hope that what I've shared with you this morning will help your shuddering hearts to stop shuddering. I pray that it will allow you to feel better about your current situation, no matter how bad it appears to be, on the surface. And I trust that God's promises are far exceeding any crisis that you're facing today. Anthony, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I wanna speak specifically to those watching online and those who are here in our building today who are, whose hearts are still trembling. I'm specifically referencing anyone who is not a Christ follower. I'm so glad that you're watching us online. I'm so glad that you're here because I wanna tell you that you can claim these promises of Jesus this very day. Get, to get to heaven, you have to become a Christian and God made that all important decision as simple as one, two, three. Number one, admit that you have sinned, that you have separated yourself from God because in truth you have. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Tell God you understand that that verse applies to you. Admit to him that, that you break his loving laws in thought and in word and in deed. And if you doubt this, then I want you to compare your life to the Ten Commandments. If you're honest, you'll admit like me that you've broken just about every one of them, except maybe murder. We've all fallen short. Romans 3.20 says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we will become conscious of our sin. The law was to remind us of what our sin looked like. So within the consciousness of your sin, humbly admit to God that you're a sinner. God, I am a sinner. You are in need of his forgiveness and that you are hopelessly lost without him. And then secondly, believe that Jesus Christ is God's only son and that he died for you on that cross as your personal savior. John 3, 16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, to believe is more than just a mental agreement that Jesus is the son of God. It is putting your faith in his death on the cross to save you and not in your good works. Understand, you cannot earn your way into heaven. This, this, this belief that I'm talking about is humbly trusting the Lord. It's swallowing your personal pride. It's not trusting in yourself any longer. It's trusting in the one who created you. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one should boast. Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and then finally, number three, confess Jesus as Lord of your life. Romans 10:9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Make Jesus the boss of your entire life. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. He is the essence of you becoming a Christian. It's acknowledging his lordship in every decision, in every relationship. If you're not a Christian, will you take these simple steps and in a moment when we pray, will you pray them? If you do, you will become a new creation. You will be saved. You will receive salvation. And all these promises that I've been talking to you about today become personal. They become yours. And if you are a Christian this morning, is our Lord commanding you to do something that you haven't done? We were greatly moved last week when Eric challenged us to step out in faith and watch as God does something unbelievable through us. You see, we are saved so that we can be used by God to do something special within his kingdom and to bring others into his kingdom. What did God challenge you with last week? The reason I ask that is Americans, we tend to respond to those things financially, which is great. And you gave a great offering for our youth to give to Speed the Light. I think we raised it with, with the matching funds of the board. We're gonna give about $6,000 to, uh, to Speed the Light. 
and I thank you for responding in a financial matter, but Jesus wants us to respond with our heart. Have you given that thing that he revealed to you any more thought? Or are you just gonna let that moment pass until I get another guest speaker in who has a great video screen with his speaking that, that shakes you to the core again? Don't let your worries, don't let your fears, don't let your shuddering, your heart trembling to prevent you from doing those things that God has called you to do that you think are bigger than you. Guess what? They are bigger than you. But when you trust God, he will see you through. He won't call you to do something that he won't accomplish in your life. You just have to trust him. I wanna read Jesus' words once more to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe and trust that God will fulfill his purposes in your life. Don't listen to the wrong voices out there. Listen only to the voice of truth. There is joy and there is victory to be experienced in your Christian walk. So get in the game. Fulfill those things that God has called you to do until you wait to go home to that heavenly home that he has prepared for you and I. Will you all stand to your feet, please? I wanna pray over you this morning. We're not gonna ask you to come to the altar today. If you wanna to come to the altar, it's always open and you can certainly come even now. But I wanna pray for you. I wanna specifically say, if you don't know the Lord, I've given you the pathway in order to do that. Pray a prayer of simple belief and trust in God. Tell him those things I told you to tell him with sincerity in your heart and you will receive salvation. You will become, as the Bible says, a new creation and we as a church would love to come alongside of you and to disciple you in your Christian walk. We have classes on Sunday morning prior to this service to help you. They're discipleship classes. They're, they're designed to strengthen you in your journey. Please allow us to help you in that area. But I also wanna pray for the Christians that are here today. And I say this a lot, more so lately than ever before, because I think it merits saying, the time is short. If, if you don't understand that, then you're really not in touch with what's going on in our world. I've never seen things go and decline so rapidly in my entire life. Day after day after day, it's just getting crazier, it's getting sillier. It, it, it's heading to an end, folks. And so when I say this place is not your home, I mean it. Because this, this place is gonna be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And those who believe in Christ Jesus will live in that. And it will be incredible. It will be incredible. So I wanna pray for you that you would dwell upon the fact that the time is short and that you only have so much time to talk to your loved ones and your friends and your coworkers about Jesus. I was talking to somebody this week and he made a statement that, that is so true. He said, hey, I, I would not wish my worst enemy to go to hell. Powerful statement because sometimes we can really hate. We are capable of generating a great deal of hate, but this man said my worst enemy, and I don't know how many enemies he has, but he said I wouldn't wish anybody to that kind of a demise. And we shouldn't either. We need to start looking at everybody through the eyes of Christ, no matter what they're caught up in, 
no matter how different they are from us, they are a, 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 a loved, prized human being that God created. And he wants to see them. He's creating a place for them too. They just have to make the choice. They just have to make the decision that they want to serve the Lord. So will you bow your heads with me, please? Precious Father, I thank you for your word. As always, it is powerful. It is meaningful. It applied to those people 3,000 years ago and, 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 and here to us today. It is truth that we need to live by. And Father, sometimes we dwell on the bad. We dwell on the struggles. And today I hope that you've allowed me to give people a glimpse of what is in store for us. That to live for the Lord is the only way we can live. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And for us to receive that eternal reward that you prepared for us, we need to live and serve you. God, make that more real to us than it ever has been before. Help us to understand that the time is short and that if we don't know Jesus, it is time to know him. And if we're not fulfilling your calling within our lives, it is time to start fulfilling because we don't want to leave here having missed an opportunity to take someone with us. Let that be our heart's cry. Pray, God, that we would look at all people with love. As hard as that sometimes is, help us to love them and to care enough about them to share the truth with them. It is not our responsibility to how they, they respond, Lord. It is our responsibility to open that door and to speak the truth of Jesus to them. So I pray that you would make this church and everyone in it ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would fulfill what you've called us to do, and that is to go out and make disciples of all men. Sear it into our mind, our heart, our spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Fathers, we go our separate ways today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, places we go, things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. That we would shine like bright lights in a dark world and that brightness would be the love of Christ shining through us. I pray that you'll give each and every one of us an opportunity to share your goodness with someone this week. When the time comes, Father, that we would trust in you, just like we've talked about today, to give us the right words to say. And that is one time that you never fail us, Lord. You give us the words to speak. We hear words coming out of our mouth. We don't even understand we're in there, but you and your spirit are guiding and directing the words. And we thank you for that. So give us all an opportunity. I also pray between now and the time we meet together again, you will keep us safe from sickness, from disease and illness. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, preventing us from coming here today. And I again ask, Father, for your healing touch upon those members who are sick. Father, touch them in their physical bodies. Strengthen them as only you can do. And I ask all of these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.